In this episode, we look at the fundamentals of language acquisition and how they should influence our teaching. This is the second of five episodes that I'm dedicating to the book Common Ground, Second Language Acquisition Theory Goes to the Classroom by Florencia Henshaw and Maris Hawkins. They are so very effective at laying out the fundamentals of SLA, which is second language acquisition, and it is essential that we understand these foundations before taking on topics such as goals or assessment, input and output, which just so happens to be the focus of the next two episodes. So we should spend some time with these fundamentals in Common Ground. So let's jump in. Are you a language teacher looking for some reassurance that what you're doing in the classroom is on the right track? Or maybe you're looking for some ways to teach even more effectively. If you're one or the other or somewhere in between, you've landed in the right place. This is the World Language Classroom Podcast with your host, me, Joshua Cabral. You're about to get tips, tools, and resources so that your students continue to rise in proficiency and communicate with confidence. Let's jump in. Vamos, allons-y. Hello, my friends. Bonjour, mes amis. Hola, mis amigos. Welcome to the World Language Classroom podcast. I am Joshua Cabral, and I am so happy that you're here today because I just want to remind you that just by simply listening to this episode and taking opportunities to think about your teaching, that makes you an incredible educator, and you need to be reminded of that as much as possible because you're doing great things. And so thank you for being that incredible educator that you are. With every episode that comes out on the podcast, there are going to be opportunities to maybe do something different in your classroom, maybe think about something in a different way. I mean, the reality is that you hear so many different ideas from different teachers or things I'm suggesting, and none of us are able to do all of it in our class the next day or to weave it into our teaching, and it's going to be effective for us. So my hope and goal with any of these episodes that you're listening to is that there will be a nugget or two, or maybe 10, who knows, that will help you to reframe the way you're doing something or give you some reassurance about it, but never this idea that you're going to put it all together and make it all work for you because the reality is everything's sort of out of order. Like one day we're talking about this topic and then the next topic is about input or writing or motivation. And when the topics aren't always set up in this linear fashion about how you can put them all to work in your classroom in this order and make it work, it makes it kind of challenging for you to go into your classroom and do all these things tomorrow or whenever you're listening to this. So my hope is always that there are those nuggets in there that help you to connect to your teaching and really think about it in a different way. If you are truly interested in taking all the details of what we're doing and putting it together in a linear fashion, then I would say definitely reach out to me because that's what I do when I do workshops with teachers. We're basically taking a lot of these ideas and putting them together in a framework that will work for you. Whereas when we're talking on the podcast with different teachers and about different topics, We are giving you opportunities to think about your teaching sort of in real time, but it's not necessarily in a framework. There may be some details and some routines that you can do in somewhat of a linear fashion. 
But if you're really looking to take these ideas and put them together in a really programmatic way, that's something that happens more in our workshops that we do, um, whether I do them virtually or in person in your school or even at conferences. But I would even say that at conferences, you go to a bunch of different workshops by different people and they're on different topics. And then in the end, you have to sort of figure out which ones am I going to put together and which ones are going to work for me because they're not all connected. They're not all part of one particular program, even if you're following a track. So as you're listening to these podcast episodes, I really suggest that you approach them as you do going to a conference. You know, it's not going to be all topics that fit into a program that you can then implement, but you're looking for those little pieces that are going to help you look at your teaching in any given week and to maybe find something in there that will be inspiring to you or helpful for you, uh, but not necessarily thinking you're gonna do it all, all the time. Wouldn't it be great if we could in fact do that? But again, that is the type of thing I do when I'm working with teachers in workshops, which can sometimes be six hours or even over two days. But when it comes to listening to this podcast, this is an opportunity to find those nuggets that are gonna work for you in your classroom. So let's give you some of those opportunities opportunities right now. So the first episode, which was 57, two episodes ago, where I really looked at how the book is framed and what their goal was in writing this book, Common Ground. So now we're going to start to really jump into a deep dive of the fundamentals of language acquisition, which is going to set us up for the next two episodes dedicated to Common Ground. We're going to start to really look at how you use those fundamentals in the classroom. But I always like to step back before we start doing that and make sure we know why we're doing it. And if you've listened to the podcast in the past or if you've seen me in workshops, I always like to start with this idea of definitions. We use these words, but are we all using them in the same way? Do we all have the same understanding of them? I like to make sure that when we use a word or even reference it, that we're all using it in the same way. Because even when we can define a word or a term, that doesn't always mean that we know what it actually looks like in practice. For example, this often happens when I ask teachers about something like PACE the P-A-C-E PACE model, and they know the acronym. They know that it stands for presentation, accentuation, co-construction, extension, and it's a way of teaching grammar or getting students to notice patterns in grammar. So they know the acronym, but then actually putting it into practice is completely a different story. So I always like to make sure that if we're going to talk about PACE, that you know exactly what it is and then how to use it. So in this case, I want to focus on the words acquisition and communication. And this is what happens in the second chapter of Common Ground, where Henshaw and Hawkins unpack. That's a Florencia Henshaw term she likes to use when she does her YouTube videos. They unpack the words acquisition and communication. These are words that we see in here all the time when we're talking about language learning, language acquisition. But do we actually know what they mean and how they can be useful for us in the classroom? So in Common Ground, Henshaw and Hawkins take on this word acquisition to start. And they define acquisition as the mostly implicit process of building a linguistic system 
by making form meaning connections from the input. So I'll say that again and notice the word mostly. So they say that acquisition is the mostly implicit process of building a linguistic system by making form meaning connections from the input. So basically, it's what happens subconsciously while we are busy understanding messages. So we are reading or listening to some form of input, and we are making meaning of it. And it's by making meaning of it that subconsciously we start to build this linguistic system. So it's not being done on the conscious level. So this is where it can be challenging for those who may be dipping their toes into the world of proficiency and acquisition-driven instruction. Because acquisition is a process that we can't consciously control, as Henshaw and Hawkins say. It's not something that we can consciously control. So if this is your foray into acquisition-driven instruction, take a deep breath, these things come up. And we just have to like sit there for a second, make sure how are we taking this in. But acquisition is a process that we can't consciously control. So the parts of the input that help us to understand the message, those are the ones that are more likely to get processed. So also, remember, the word mostly implicit process from earlier. So that's where they're also saying they are more likely to get processed. So the parts of the message, whether you're reading or listening, those parts that are helping you to really understand the message, to understand the input, that is going to be what gets processed and solidified in your linguistic system, or as Bill Van Patten says, your mind-brain. So that can get a little bit challenging right there. I know that's very theoretical. Remember, this is Theory goes to the classroom in common ground, but not to get too bogged down in the theory, but that's what acquisition is. It's this subconscious process. It's not a conscious process. So they simplify it for us. So the authors give us these simple ways of looking at all of that. And it's essentially that input builds the system. So it's input, both reading or listening. It is that input that is going to build the system. It is that input making meaning of that input that is going to start to make those form meaning connections in your brain and that's where subconsciously those rules are gonna get created. So that's the focus on input, but output helps learners get better at accessing the system. So input is building it, but output is just giving you access to it. So basically, without input, there's no output. This is another deep breath moment. I often use this when I'm doing workshops and I can see that teachers really want to grasp this and be part of acquisition-driven instruction, but then they'll hear something that is so different than the way they've been doing it or the way they were taught to do it that it is a time to take a deep breath and make sure that we are giving ourselves time to process it. So we hear from Henshaw and Hawkins that input builds the system and output helps the learner to access the system, but not necessarily to acquire language. So essentially with that no input means no output. So that traditional teaching of a rule and then you use it, you immediately go to output and use it, 
and thinking that that's what's going to make the grammar rule or the vocabulary stick, that's just not the reality of language acquisition as it's borne out in research. So here are the verb conjugations. So here, practice them and then write 10 sentences with them or say five sentences with them so that immediate output that is the traditional legacy way of thinking that that's how you were acquiring the language. And what we're seeing here is that we need to focus more on the input. They need to hear it. They need to read it. They need to make sense of it and understand it. And that is what's going to build those rules or those patterns in their mind-brain language system. Such a different take from the traditional way of teaching vocabulary, teaching grammar rules, and then having students use them right away with the output because of thinking that the output is going to be what makes it acquired or will stick or become part of the long-term memory. So this is one of those deep breath moments. If that's something new, something challenging to grasp, give yourself some time with it and start trying out some of the ideas that I'll be talking about on here. And then you'll see how that works because what you will probably end up seeing is when you teach those grammar rules, and if you've already done it, you teach those grammar rules and students use it and it's, oh, great. And then if you don't focus on it for a couple of days or a couple of weeks, you come back to it, it is not in fact part of their long-term memory. It's not in there and they probably won't be able to access it because it wasn't done through rich input where they had to make those form meaning connections. So output does not build the system and neither does learning about the language. So we don't acquire language by learning its rules and then applying them. So Henshaw and Hawkins say that the magic happens outside of the conscious zone. And this is reminiscent for me of Stephen Krashen's acquisition learning hypothesis. So that's essentially what we are getting at there, that those things that are learned are consciously learned and those things that are acquired are subconsciously acquired. So this is where the book Common Ground really starts to solidify for me. And these are concepts like the terminology that we can state and define. We know what acquisition is. We know what communication is. But is that what it actually looks like in our classroom? So remember, we're taking the theory and we're going to the classroom with this book. So when you talk about acquisition and you're an acquisition-driven classroom, you're a communicative classroom, whatever terminology you want to use, if you're still teaching the grammar rules and going right to output, then that is not exactly following the advice, the research-based advice that we're seeing here with these fundamentals, that we really want to focus on input before output and really having a rich form of input so students can make that form meaning connection. So that's acquisition. And then there's communication. So what is communication? Let's look at what communication is and what it's not. Because I think it's sometimes helpful to really understand a term by understanding what it isn't. So there are various definitions used by many different people in the field of language acquisition and second language acquisition, like Bill Van Patten. But Henshaw and Hawkins boil it all down to simply the purposeful interpretation and or expression of meaning. So we have expression of meaning. 
that is more on the output, but it's the interpretation as well, which is the input side. So it's very clearly that communication is not one way because it's interpretation and expression of meaning. But I will point out that it's not just interpretation and expression of meaning, input-output, but the purposeful interpretation and or expression of meaning. So that purposeful part is truly what makes it communication. Because if students are just reading, just listening, and showing that they understood whether they understood somebody speaking or understood something that they read, or they're able to tell you about something, or they're able to write about something. That does not necessarily mean that it's purposeful. And to make sure that this interpretation and expression of meaning is truly purposeful, making it truly communication, there are two powerful questions that Henshaw and Hawkins give us to keep us in this world of, is it really truly purposeful communication? And the first one is, what information or content is being conveyed? And then, what will the audience do with the information? And it's that second one, what will they do with the information? So it's one thing to understand through input, through the interpretive mode, and also through presentational, whether it's writing, and maybe even some interpersonal. But then, in the end, once all this information is shared and understood and gleaned from the activity or the whatever sort of interchange it is, what will you then do with that information? That's the most important part that brings in that whole idea of the purposeful interpretation or expression of meaning. So it's that extra step. It's sort of that extension of the activity. So now we have this solid idea of what acquisition is and what communication is. And there's already so much within there for really looking at the fundamentals of how second language acquisition works, how SLA works. So when we look at that and we take away this idea that you teach vocabulary, you teach grammar rules, or you explain grammar rules, or you are creating activities or maybe a worksheet or something where students are engaging with the language, but it's really from this point of view of they're providing output after you explain the language to them. So if that's not what we're doing, if we are seeing that that's not as effective as looking at input before output, then what, in fact, is our role as a teacher in what I will call a communicative language classroom or in an acquisition-driven language classroom? So here we go again, another deep breath. So it's not about showing learners how to do it and then helping them master it through repetitive practice. That's not what it is. Repetition and imitation are not the driving forces of acquisition. And Henshaw and Hawkins make it a point to really stress this, that our role as a teacher is not to show them how to do it, explain the grammar rules, to show them lists of vocabulary, and then help them to master it through repetition and practice. Because that repetition and that imitation are not going to drive acquisition. So if that's the case, what is our job? Essentially, it's to provide and create or craft opportunities for our students to communicate. And remember, that's the purposeful interpretation and expression of meaning. So it's an opportunity for our students to communicate by remembering 
what information or content is being conveyed, and then what will the audience do with that information? So it's creating those types of opportunities rather than those opportunities to hear how the language works or an explanation of how structures are done. Because acquisition is building a linguistic system by making form meaning connections from the input. And when we say form meaning, it's this idea of if you say sort of in Spanish, for example, if you say como as opposed to comí, and you can learn that the present tense of an ER verb for the first person singular has an O on the end, and in the preterite in the past tense, it has an I on the end with an accent on it. So you know that that's how you form it. But the como and comi, you could do that with any verb and not know its meaning. You could do that with any verb without truly understanding that the O puts it in the present tense and that the E sound on the end is what puts it in the past because that O and that E actually have meaning. So you know that the O, you're doing something about talking right now or if you say comi, I ate, in that case, that you have to make sure that they're drawing meaning on that and that they're understanding that that's not just a form that puts it in the past, but they're actually communicating something about the past where they're attaching meaning to that form as well. So with that form meaning connection, it's about what happens subconsciously. You know, while we are busy understanding these messages and making sense of them, these are opportunities that we should be creating for students. So rather than working on explaining grammar and showing these vocabulary lists, we are always starting with input activities where students are listening and reading. So you are assessing their interpretive communication at that point of the input, whether it's reading or listening. And then once they have made those four meaning connections with that, then you can start moving to output or exchanges of information. And that's a bit of a change of what the traditional classroom is going to look like. So that was the big chunk of really understanding the fundamentals is truly what acquisition is and what communication is. And once we have those, then we can look at the subsequent chapters that get into input and output and what those activities look like and why they work. And you'll question it a little less, hopefully, about why that's effective now that we understand fundamentally what acquisition is and what communication is. And as the chapter, this particular chapter, moves on, there are a few more topics. Uh, there is a deep dive into the communication modes, which are interpretive, presentational, and interpersonal. And there are examples of each. And this is something that I often point out when I'm doing workshops with teachers when they're distinguishing what interpersonal and presentational speaking might look like. So we need to remember that presentational always means that there was some prep in advance and that with interpersonal, it is spontaneous and in the moment. So if students are memorizing a dialogue and they are doing the dialogue just simply based on what they memorized, it looks like interpersonal communication. If anyone were to see it not knowing what happened in advance, they would think it is interpersonal communication, whereas it is presentational communication. Now, 
I always get the question, does that mean that presentational communication is bad and should be avoided and it's not useful? I don't believe that at all. I particularly think that for novice level learners, that learning some of those dialogues could be helpful for getting some of those memorized chunks of language that they can then use. We want to move beyond just what they memorize in the dialogue, but then taking maybe some of the phrases that were in the dialogue and have them change it out and use it in different ways. So there is a purpose in presentational speaking. Just make sure that you know what that purpose is and that it's not thought to be interpersonal when it's not actually that. There's then a discussion in the chapter about the differences and similarities between first and second language acquisition. There are some theories that see them as pretty much the same process, and then there are some that see it as completely different. And this is a whole school of thought and really looking into it from the different ways. But some of the things between first and second language are going to be similar. And for my own take, I think that, and what I've seen, is that with first language acquisition, there's no interference. You're building this system from scratch. And if you are a proponent of universal grammar and Chomsky, then the whole idea of what is being turned on, turned off, and all of that. So that gets into the whole Chomsky universal grammar world. But in first language acquisition, there's no interference of another language. Whereas with second language acquisition, you do have L1, first language interference that could come in there. And sometimes that could be good. You know, that could be helpful interference in terms of cognates or common underlying proficiencies like you write left to right rather than right to left or a similar alphabet. So there are some forms of interchange or interference that could be very useful and then there are some that are going to hinder the process because there's expectations that it's going to be a certain way and a pattern is actually very different but there is this discussion of first and second language acquisition and how that could work but essentially for our purposes we should recognize that there's going to be first language interference in some way because students are not starting from scratch and then there's a little bit of talk about textbooks, like how can you talk about language learning these days without textbooks? And if you have to use one, I will say, that is not communicative in nature, just think about what you can pull from it. I think that so much of the traditional way textbooks are written are not for an acquisition-driven classroom. And so we kind of think, oh, I can't use anything from that. It does the linear grammar teaching and the explanations. Here's the rule. Go and use it. And that's true. But some of us are in a position we are mandated to use a textbook. So I want to make sure that there's something in this for you if you fall into that category. So in looking at your books, are there authentic documents that come up in the chapter that you could use? And a lot of times they'll be at the end of the chapter and they use the information from the chapter so students can better understand it. So think about using those early on rather than at the end so students can start to see those patterns and the vocabulary in context rather than waiting until the end. Because traditionally, that's the way the textbooks did it. You learned all this stuff, and then you get to see it in context. So if those are in there, those documents are in the textbook, think about starting 
the chapter with those if you have to go by chapter in your curriculum and use it that way with reference to it completely as you're going through. Now, I do have to say that there are emerging textbooks which have much more of a focus on the modes and proficiency levels, and they also include inductive grammar that has students find patterns on their own after using input activities. And I'm hoping to see that be more of the trend so that teachers are not always having to create everything from scratch, that they'll have opportunities with those textbooks. But essentially what they're doing is they're taking those things that were traditionally at the end and putting at the beginning of the chapter. So it's a little bit of reinventing the wheel, but I actually kind of see it as spinning the wheel a little bit in a different way and engaging with those authentic documents early on or right away or as the first thing rather than learning about all the language elements and then seeing them in context. And then the chapter finishes out with the what it looks like in the classroom, and that gets into a lot of different activities. And I would recommend that if you want to get into what those specific activities are, they're either in the book or you can uh, reach out and I can ask Florencia Henshaw and Maris Hawkins to speak about those activities specifically when I have them on the podcast in a couple of weeks. And each chapter ends with those opportunities to really reflect. Like now that you know all this and you see how it works, like what is this going to look like in your classroom? So what are our fundamental takeaways within this whole idea of our guiding principles of language teaching and learning or acquiring? So the first one is remember that whole idea of acquisition, that it's the mostly implicit process of building a linguistic system by making that four-meaning connection from the input. So remember, it's what happens subconsciously while we're busy understanding the message, always that subconscious part. It's a process that we can't consciously control. So remember, it's those parts of the input that help us to understand the message that are more likely to get processed. And remember always those things like more likely, the mostly implicit process, because there's not just one way. And that's why I really appreciate and respect the way Henshaw and Hawkins wrote this book for teachers, that they're not saying that there's only the one way, but here is a very effective way that we have found based on research. And to keep in mind that we don't acquire language by learning its rules and then applying them. It's a deep breath moment for some of us. And then truly understanding what communication is, and as Henshaw and Hawkins boil it down to saying that it's the purposeful interpretation and or expression of meaning, and that how do we keep it purposeful with those two questions? What information or content is being conveyed, and what will the audience do with that information? And then what do we do as a teacher? Big takeaway, what is our role as a teacher? Remember, it's not about showing learners how to do it through explanations of grammar, and then helping them to master it through repetitive practice, because repetition and imitation are not the driving forces of acquisition. So our job is then to provide and create opportunities for students to communicate. And that means the purposeful interpretation and expression of meaning. 
So much like Florencia Henshaw says when she unpacks a research article on her YouTube channel, Unpacking Language Pedagogy, this is my take on what I'm reading in Common Ground, and I encourage you to read it for yourself to get all the details and examples so that you can draw your own conclusions. And then I would love to know what those are so that we can have a dialogue about it, we can talk more about it, we can come to different conclusions and to collaborate on a deeper understanding. There is a link in the show notes to get your own copy of Common Ground. Florencia Henshaw mentioned to Hackett Publishing, who published Common Ground, that I was going to be doing a series of episodes unpacking the book, and they reached out to me and offered a 25% discount on the book for listeners. So use the link in the show notes and be sure to use the discount code WLC2022, it's also in the show notes, to make sure that you get 25% off your own copy of Common Ground directly through the publisher. Remember that I will be speaking with Florencia Henshaw and Maris Hawkins all about Common Ground in the coming weeks. We'll have an episode to finish this whole series. We'll take on some of the what ifs and what abouts. And I do not want this to be a closed space or an echo chamber of just my thoughts and experiences and takeaways. I want to know your thoughts. So please share them with me. What are your whatabouts and your personal experiences and questions about these guiding principles or the upcoming episodes so that my conversation with Florencia and Maris include your thoughts as well? You can tweet them to me or message me on Instagram. I'm at WL Classroom on both. Put questions in my Facebook group, which is also in the show notes, or you can always email them to me. I'm Joshua at WLClassroom.com. And if you are going to put things on Twitter, be sure to also tag Florencia Henshaw and Maris Hawkins. Their Twitter handles are in the show notes so that we can get the conversation going through there as well as when we have the episode at the end of the series with them. So lots going on in the show notes. Uh, In addition to those opportunities to get the book uh, Common Ground through Hackett Publishing at 25% off, you'll also see a link to sign up for Talking Points, which is my weekly email newsletter with tips and resources for language teaching. There are also links to get in touch with me if you'd like to work together either in person in your school, or we could even do it remotely. And as I mentioned at the beginning of this episode, a lot of the things that you hear about on these episodes or in conferences are not necessarily put together in a programmatic way for you. So if you would like that opportunity to take a lot of these ideas and put them together in step-by-step within your individual department, that's definitely something that we can do together. So reach out. The links are there to get in touch with me to start that process and to think about those possibilities. I also put a link in the show notes. This is new this season for you to get in touch with me if you would like to be a guest on the podcast with me. I do enjoy the industry experts, as I will have Florencia Henshaw and Maris Hawkins, who are well-known in their publishing and researching. But I also know that there is a huge benefit for listeners by hearing from teachers who are directly in the classroom every single day working with students. So I wanna know what you're proud of and what you would like to share with teachers so that we can all improve and make our teaching more effective. 
So what are you proud of and what do you want to share? So I encourage you to click on the link where you can share a little information about yourself and then I'll be in touch about possibly having a conversation together here on the podcast. Okay, that's a lot of information there. So I'm going to leave it and hope that you have a wonderful day in your teaching classroom. Talk to you soon. Bye for now. You've been listening to the World Language Classroom Podcast. Be sure to follow or subscribe wherever you're listening so you don't miss a single episode. Let's continue the conversation on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at WL Classroom. You can also see over 250 blog posts about language teaching at, you guessed it, wlclassroom.com.